I am here to discuss the so-called flying saucer. We have received and analyzed between one and two thousand reports. Anything <laughs> in the air that may have the possibility of threat or menace. Tightly around the hips, straight. Meteorological or electronic phenomena. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. You'll excuse the fact that I'm out of breath. It does not contain any pattern of purpose or of consistency. All right, what's up, everyone, and welcome to episode three of Geek Out Down the Rabbit Hole. I, as always, am your host, Vinnie Marone, along with my co-hosts and distinguished intellectual human beings, Miss Ange Marie. What's up, guys? Mr. Alex Kopeck. We got to work on your definition of distinguished intellectual human beings, <laughs> but hi. <laughs> and this week, we have a very special guest. He's someone that I've known forever, Alex has known forever, Ange has known for about uh, 20 minutes, and uh, hopefully we give him such a warm welcome, he'll want to join us much more often. You might know him as... Mr. Jared Sin from the band The Zombie Mafia. What's up, Jared? Yo, what's up? What's good? How you doing? Oh, I'm doing good, man. I've, I'm sipping my coffee that's not Dunkin' Donuts coffee. Whatever. Um, but I, <laughs> I do have... As long as it isn't Starbucks. <gasps> that's true. I he just Starbucks. slammed me because he knows that's what I'm drinking. I had no idea. I don't I care that you. much, but I don't listen. Oh, Okay. <laughs> His his natural abilities to taunt just sensed it. All I know is Dunkin' or die. Okay. Good lord. I don't I don't um, I don't do either. It's weird. I don't know Folgers. a lot about. Yeah. Well, no, it's not even Folgers. What do you drink when you're on the road then? I have a thermos that I specifically make tons of coffee for because I won't go to a Dunkin' or a Wawa or anything like that. How come? Whoa, 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 whoa. What's your beef with Wawa now? All right, we're scrapping the alien episode. <laughs> let's uh let's get into the convenience store debate. Like Duncan, Duncan I can get. Don't get me wrong. As much as I love it, it's definitely hit or miss with the coffee. I do understand that. What do you have against Wawa? Wawa makes good stuff. I don't know, man. <laughs> no, they don't. I don't have one of those around here, so I can't comment. You're lucky. Uh, <laughs> Jared, how can you hate Wawa, the chocolate milk, the lemonade, the pretzels? Oh, man. Do you really want to go down this, this rabbit hole right now? I just, I don't understand. That's the name of the show. I know you didn't like it, but you hate Wawa? The pretzels are good. The breakfast sandwiches are good. Everything else hasn't been good for the last 15 years. When they stopped fresh cutting your deli meats and you're right next to Philly, there's an issue. What about what about the chocolate milk, though? The chocolate milk and the lemonade hasn't changed. Chocolate milk is chocolate milk, man. You can get that anywhere. And the lemonade is, is very fake. <sighs> Extremely <laughs> artificial. I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go there for a sandwich. But, I go there for you know, a sandwich. Some- I worked at Wawa very briefly. You did. I did work at Wawa briefly, and I was uh, I was very impressed with the way that they take care of like their food products. So it didn't skeeve me out the way that I thought it would, and I actually enjoy eating their food more now, knowing that they take care of them properly. I mean, this was like still 
15 years ago, but I, I'd imagine it's I, similar. See, I, what, what did I say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, well, they're you know, trying to copy off of Sheets. They're trying to copy off of Sheets and Rudder. They are. There's a reason the Ramones never sounded like Blink-182. <laughs> this is very true. Uh-huh. And why Blink-182 doesn't sound like Dropkick Murphys, because they're not from Boston. Well, how am I going to segue from that? I don't know. Because Blink-182 had a uh, wonderful song. A lead singer. Yeah. They had a lead singer who is obsessed yes. with UFOs. There See you that? Go. There's your segue. This is why you keep me around. That's a, that's a segue alley-oop. That's what we call it. A segue Alex-oop, maybe. <laughs> I put it up there, Alex and oop. Alex just slam dunks it. But he's absolutely right. Blink-182 did have, or does have, a singer. I don't know. Did he rejoin the band again for the, like, the fourth time? It's a gray area. They're talking about it. It's going to happen. They need money. Yeah. Well, Tom DeLonge, he's, uh, when he first started coming out with this stuff, I didn't think how, that he was serious about it, honestly. But he's devoted a lot of his life to UFO research. I mean, to be fair, when he first came out with this, Tom DeLonge was in a place in his life where he didn't appear to be serious about anything. <laughs> Have you heard some of that Blink-182 stage banter? Take I mean, off really. your pants and jackets. <laughs> and get into that shining beam of light. Well, is, I, I haven't actually heard the song, but is Aliens Exist actually about aliens? I think so. I haven't listened to it in like 20 years, but yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. So you're saying that much like the government, he planted the seeds early on. Dum, dum, dum. It's all about disclosing on a on a comfortable level, and that's uh well, that's kind of like where we're starting here. I'm I'm hoping that even though we're only on our third episode at this point, I'm hoping that this podcast grows some legs and exists for a while. I mean, if we can all put up with each other, I guess is the question. I make no promises about <laughs> being tolerable. I apologize in advance to Ange. You know, one of the reasons why I even started down the rabbit hole was because. I have this fascination with UFOs, and, and Ange, I know you mentioned last week that this is one of your particular favorite topics as well. Absolutely. So what, what about it fascinates you so much? I think it was when I was a kid, I saw that movie Fire in the Sky. <laughs> yeah. And I obviously was a child, so I was terrified, number one. But then when you're told it was based on a true story, you're, you're like, oh, okay. Then you, your curiosity starts to grow. And to think that that could have actually happened. And then when internet started to come around and you read about it and you read about the guy and it was just, people didn't believe him. And it was such an interesting story for the times. That's where I got introduced to it, basically. And then you hear other things. And then around my area in New England, there were a lot of sightings and a lot of I mean, people- I saw something at one point. Yeah. I mean, like my mom told me when she went up to my aunt's house up in New Hampshire that she swears she saw one and they both saw it. So I was like, well, they both can't be wrong. Did they describe it? What it looked like? I mean, yeah, they described it was all lights. And my aunt actually lived by a campground where there was sightings by other people. And it was actually in their local newspaper. So I was like, what did it look like? You know, she's like, well, it was like lights and what you would think it would be. She goes, and I turned to say something to your aunt. By the time I turned back, it was gone. But they both saw it. Wow. And then she goes, and then when I got back to the house, she's like, I was so freaked out. But like, not like scared wise. She was just freaked out. She actually saw it. And she's like, I kept like looking out the window, seeing if I could see it and everything else. So, I mean, she saw it. I personally haven't. I wish I would, but I've had family 
come and tell me that they have, I believe it like 100%. And Alex, you said you saw something? Yeah, I had Joe with me in my car. We were on the stretch by Vintage Vinyl. Ah, And it it was nighttime, but it wasn't pitch black out. The sky was gray. And we saw this like really big triangular shape in the sky. And we're both kind of like, what the hell is that? So when you say really big, relatively speaking, if you could kind of put a guesstimate on how big it was, was it the um, size of like a football field? Was it more the size of a, you know, of a smaller, larger, larger than a blimp. Okay. Larger than a blimp, smaller than a football field. We didn't see any lights. It was just this large, unexplainable shape. And we passed it. There weren't any lights or anything that I remember, but I mean, obviously we were on like a major highway. We couldn't stop doing like 70 miles an hour to stare at it. I mean, I would have, but but, you know, well, that's how I would have gotten like hit by a car and died. (laughs) That's true. And while the world would have been a better place for it. Oh, stop it. Survival instinct thing I have. Stop it. Uh, We we, don't need. We both agree. Look, you are zombie Alex in name. We don't need real zombie Alex. All right. We need a live zombie We both agreed. We had no logical explanation for it. Like it wasn't. It didn't appear to be moving. So just like hovering. Yeah. Pretty much just hovering. It, it, any sound? Anything like, um, did, did, no, did you notice no any sound. noise? We didn't notice any noise, but we both agreed that we had never seen anything like it before. That it was too big to be like a regular aircraft. It wasn't even the shape of a regular aircraft. We, we had no basis of comparison for it. We'd never seen anything that quite looked like it in the sky before. And I haven't since. I don't think Joe has either, but I can't confirm that. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty incredible. For as, for as much as I personally am, am in love with this topic and, and want to believe in these, you know, extraordinary things that are around. I've never seen anything remotely, you know. I mean, I'm usually I'm usually the guy that goes for like, you know, there's a logical explanation for this, but I just I, I got nothing. Yeah. How about you, Jared? Uh, I mean, much like Ange, my earliest memory of being fascinated with uh aliens was fire in the sky. Uh I saw it in my cousin's barber shop in the middle of the afternoon and it uh scared the poop out of me (laughs) i i could not look at pancake syrup the same for Mm -hmm. years after that oh my Um, gosh i know right and it, it was the same thing it was the fact that it's a horror movie trope but based yeah. on actual events and whatnot then i realized that my dad actually did have two books on his shelf about aliens and he claims to have seen them when he was younger back when there wasn't as much you know smog and crap from philly floating through the skies (laughs) but i did have a thing one night maybe 10 years ago i'm driving and i see what i just figure is you know helicopter or an airplane or whatever but I notice it's just hovering. And after a while, it did start to move in certain patterns, uh, circular, triangular. And it was just like, oh, 
planes don't move like that. So I ended up uh, calling my friend who was also very much into this type of stuff. And he was like, no, dude, I'm watching it too. I'm standing on my back porch. Holy and I, I get there and this is in Pensacon. And we probably watched this one. I know one more showed up at some point, zoomed in, stayed for a bit, zoomed out. But I think there was actually two more at one point. It's a little fuzzy. But um, we watched this thing do these little patterns in the air for another 20, 30 minutes before it blinked out of existence. Didn't leave the skyscape, just gone. That's crazy, man. And that's where you hear a lot of these sightings where these craft or whatever they are, really, there's still not a definitive answer of what we're seeing up there. But they do. They just kind of, they leave uh, in the blink of an eye. Mach 15, Mach 20 speeds that are impossible for a human being to even survive. Like if a, if, if a human were in the craft itself, if it is a craft, literally the, the person would turn into soup, you know, with how right. fast it's moving. So it's also insanely interesting. And this whole topic, with the privilege of being able to do this as many times as we're able to, we're going to be covering a lot of UFO situations and sightings and everything else. And just for our listeners and for myself, I had to look it up. So Fire in the Sky, it's funny, it covers the life or the experience of Travis Walton. Uh And I'm very familiar with Travis's story. I, you know, I've listened to a lot of his interviews and I know all about the account, but I've never seen the movie. So I'm really interested now. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back. I've never seen it. Yeah, it's, I mean, I don't know if it's held up to the test of time, but at the time it it was terrifying. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I have to check it out. Yeah, because like I said, I saw it when I was a child and I and I yelled at my mom and I was like, why did you let me watch that? Like, (laughs) hello, I had to like (laughs) sleep with you for like uh, two weeks because I was afraid I was going to get abducted, you know? Yes. Yeah. Don't worry, they bring it back. Well, they well, that's what happened with Travis. They ended up, you know, bringing him back. But he was so messed up from it. He had like complete PTSD from it. And nobody believed that he got taken and brought back because he was just reported as like a missing person. And then when they came back, they were like, oh, it was just this big hoax. And he needed it for attention. And nobody believed that he got probed and all that stuff that they did to him on the ship. And I mean, you can't make that shit up. I'm sorry. Like, you can't. I mean, what he, it was complete detail, what, what he did from start to finish, what they did to him and they show it in the movie. And I was like, okay. But then like, you know, as I got older, I was like, okay, I can accept this now. And, you know, it didn't scare me as much. And then I started to read about it and talk to family members about it. And it's It's heavy stuff. It was very interesting, but yeah, don't let your children watch it, please. God help us all. (laughs) No. Well, um, He's still on to this day about it. You know, he he yes, he's a very yeah. big advocate for for disclosure and and finding out what these things are. Now about this. So if you're listening to this, you're interested obviously in UFOs. That's what we've known them as for decades and decades is unidentified flying objects. But what we officially or what we once knew as UFOs, I should say, they're now officially called UAPs or unidentified aerial phenomenon. Uh, And to take it one step further from the official data that has been collected and shared with the general public, at least, both in the U.S. and around the world, UFOs, UAPs, 
aren't just regulated to the skies. In fact, the term USO, or Unidentified Submerged Objects, has been coined in an effort to let people know that, hey, these sightings are also happening near and even underwater. And there's theories around they might use them as uh, our water as fuel. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy theories. So we'll probably always on this show refer to them as UFOs just because we're all old heads and that's <laughs> that's what we know I'm them not as. Remember you yeah. right, Dave. I ain't well. got no time to learn new things. Well, I'm just mad I can't go to the beach this summer because now there's USOs in the yeah. water. There's no one's doing that. Now, now I can't enjoy my summer. You got Jaws and Aliens. Seriously. In oh, the water. Man. Catch a wave, catch a probe. You never know. How <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> I'm to catch a little probe action. Oh, man. Well, oh. maybe that'll give you incentive to go into the water. Who knows? It depends on what you're into. But <laughs> I mean, you know, it's very ironic we're doing this episode because I just watched that movie, Paul. Oh, the my other God. day. Oh. That's so Seth Rogen. Yeah. It's like, why, why do you always assume we're going to go for the probe? <laughs> You know, probing technology, we've reached the limits of what probing technology can teach us. It, it says a lot Don't about worry, uh, Ange, go our subconscious desires. No, I'm not going. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're interested in this, you're listening to this, and you want to keep track with all things disclosure, because we're actually in the midst of it. It's happening. You know, the Pentagon itself, mm-hmm. the highest form of security in our nation is, is starting to release files, release video audio of these sightings of these whether they're craft or not if you see it on the news you're going to see it as uap or unidentified aerial phenomenon but in my mind everything kind of comes to this junction and now you can argue that these sightings these experiences have happened literally thousands of years ago Mm -hmm. Uh, there's there's documents and records that can be interpreted as such and they happen continually to this day. But whether it happened in the past or it's happened recently, it all kind of converges into this one spot. And that's why I wanted to start here today, which is in Roswell, New Mexico. So I want to take a trip back in time for the next hour or so. So humor me a little, everyone. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath or two. Imagine the energies of temporal displacement surrounding you as if you were in Doc Brown's time machine until we're transported to a cozy ranch near Corona, New Mexico. And that is a really awful town name to have to think about in, in our post-pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about that when I was doing the research. But we're in Corona, New Mexico. You wake up on a seemingly typical Tuesday morning at about 6 a.m., after a quick breakfast and a cup of coffee, you leave the ranch and you head to town. I mean... Vinny, let me just stop you right there. If you think I'm getting up at 6 a.m. and having (laughs) one cup of coffee, you are deluded, sir. All right. So you have your breakfast. You have several cups of coffee. Several pots of coffee. You leave the ranch and you head to town to pick up a few groceries and the morning paper. So you pick up the July 8th evening edition of the paper and you notice a headline. RAAF captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region. Now, RAAF in this case stands for Roswell Army Airfield. The airfield opened just six years earlier as the United States was entering World War II. Now, the term flying saucer especially catches your attention because a fellow rancher near Corona named Mac Brazel recently had become the talk of the town. Whispers about strength. Good name. Right? Mac Brazel. Mac Brazel, Mac Brazel, Mac Brazel. I don't know if I should cut that out or keep going with it. But. <laughs> Did you just... Uh... 
It's Mike the, Jones the shit out of that? I'm Mac Jones the shit out of Mac Brazel. <laughs> he was the original Mac Daddy. Um, <clears throat> but whispers about strange debris from an alleged crash were found on a ranch Brazel tended to that belonged to a gentleman named J.B. Foster. And not long before the rumor started, Mac explained he had collected strange debris that was scattered over an estimated square mile or more on the Foster Ranch. So this debris was literally, think about it. I mean, it takes uh, the average person, what, like 17 minutes to, to walk a mile? So if you walked a mile in one direction and made a, a hard right and walked another mile, debris were literally scattered in, the, in that area that you just walked in. But thinking that the debris was nothing more than junk from an airbase operation gone wrong, Mac piled the debris in a remote spot out of the way on the property and covered it over with brush, meaning to burn it later, just to, like I said, kind of get it out of the way. And it was a sheep ranch, so obviously he didn't want the animals to, to interact with it or, or uh, get hurt from it. Well, uh, uh, reportedly, the animals wouldn't go near it. He would have to completely circumvent the entire area to get his sheep to go to where they were supposed to be going. Ah, see that, that now that's a really interesting tidbit about this and that you might think to yourself, Oh, why is this guy like taking the time to pile this somewhere and get rid of it when it can, you know, just kind of become part of the land. But that makes a lot of sense, Jared, that the sheep weren't interacting with it. And it also lends a little bit of mystique as to what, you know, what this debris was and if it had some kind of property that would cause him to do that. On an unrelated trip into town that Saturday night, July 5th, 1947, Mac noticed folks in Corona were abuzz with stories of flying disc sightings that seemed to stretch from the state of Washington all the way down to Oklahoma. And in this general time frame as well, I mean, they were as far east as Kentucky and Ohio as well. But in this particular, in July, there were a lot uh, from Washington to Oklahoma. But without a telephone or radio at his ranch, Mac had no idea these rumors of flying discs and saucers were going around. But as soon as he heard them, something clicked, and he instantly connected these tales with the strange debris he found on his property just a couple weeks before. So on Sunday, Mac promptly returned to the site he covered the debris over with brush, with his wife and child in tow, and gathered the scraps into the bed of his truck, intending to take it to a sheriff he knew down in Roswell. So on that Monday morning, July 7th, Mac took the two-hour drive down Highway 285, and told Sheriff George Wilcox about his hypothesis, that the debris in his truck came from a crashed flying saucer. So, kind of given what Jared just mentioned about the debris having some sort of property that made these sheep react to it in a negative way, what, what do you guys think about having this epiphany while you're out on your property? You know, you're kind of in the middle of nowhere. And you have a, a job that's, it's very important, but it's very mundane. And then you have this extraordinary thing happen to you. How do you think that you would react to that? I think he reacted like he's got a little too much free time on his hands. <laughs> I mean, listen, we, we don't, I'm, I'm not saying it's not UFO debris. I'm not saying that it, it very well could be. There could be little green men running around chasing his sheep, spooking them. But here's the thing. Like I said, I always tend to kind of go for the most logical explanation is the right one. Now, sheep aren't exactly the dodo. They're not extinct. But, you know, Mensa isn't breaking down the door to induct sheep either. <laughs> like, honestly, sheep, could, could sheep be spooked by UFO parts? Absolutely. 
Could they be spooked by airplane parts or a frigging carburetor? Probably. Now, this guy's by an Air Force base. Could it be UFO debris? Sure. Is it highly more likely that if you're by an Air Force base, you're going to find debris from a plane crash or just some junk parts that some poor corporal was told by their sergeant to dispose of? And he got a little lazy and figured, why take it the three-hour drive into town to the junkyard when I can just chuck it on this poor sheep farmer's land, you know? Yeah, that's ve- that's a very good point you make, too. And, and that's why, at first, Brazel did think that it was nothing more than debris from the airfield because, you know, he encountered a lot of situations where parts would kind of find their way onto his property, whether they fell off during flight or like you said, if they were improperly disposed of. But something did, something about this debris struck him weirdly. And whether it was, you know, the stories and the hysteria around it that kind of fueled that, we'll have to see. We'll have to see how it plays out. I didn't realize sheep farmers had THDs and the difference between airplane parts and UFO parts. And they may not. And that's why... With his curiosity, he took it to Sheriff Wilcox. Now, Sheriff Wilcox's next step was naturally to contact the Roswell Army Airfield. And when he did, his case was immediately assigned to Major Jesse Marcel. But I just want to... Can I add something real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, just because we didn't get the other side of the defending of the sheep. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to rewind for a second because... What I think was, I mean, not that, you know, Alex's opinion, I could go with that too, but I've always been not like taught or told, but I always felt that animals had a sixth sense in every way, shape or form, whether it be UFOs or ghosts or anything. I think children are the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, They can see things that we can't. And I feel like animals have this this deeper sixth sense than humans. And I think that that's why they stayed away from the UFO parts, because they had some sort of like instinct, like that's not a good area to go near. It's dangerous. And for not just one, but like a herd of them doing that, it's kind of interesting. Well, they abs- you're absolutely right. I don't want to rain you know, on they, Alex's they parade do. real quick. So I, yeah. I don't want to rain on Alex's parade. But I will say that and spoiler alert. You know, we are going to learn that the U.S. Air Force confirms later on that the debris that was found was not ordinary. So the sheep were on to something. Well, I'm not I'm not saying they don't have a sixth sense. Animals absolutely do. All I was saying was animals can get spooked by anything they don't know. Like a sheep's not going to know that it's. You know, a regular airplane part. Of sheep's not going to know right. that it's a UFO part. Well, I'm not saying he's be, sitting there with like a clipboard and familiar. saying, "Oh, you know, <laughs> checking off boxes, checking off boxes." Like, oh, okay, yeah. But I just, I always thought that about animals, especially if we get into like another episode. If we do like ghosts and 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 you know hauntings, it's the it's children and pets that they gravitate to. Yeah. So it wasn't unlikely that the sheep were being weird for a reason. I'm sure they were. I'm just saying the unknown to a sheep and or a herd of sheep and the unknown to a human are two different things. Well, yeah, of course. That's all. <laughs> I, I don't think they, uh, they're working on the same wavelength as most of us. Yeah, probably not, unless it's the one with the clipboard. So the sheep with the <laughs> clipboard may have, you know, what it takes to be a second lieutenant. Uh, in the U.S. Army Air Force. And if he does, if that sheep with the clipboard checking off boxes on what the debris is and taking inventory, if he has what it takes, 
then he would typically graduate to first lieutenant, uh, and then to captain, and then finally to the rank of major. So this sheep now is a major, Mm. and let's not forget, that's the rank that Jesse Marcel had earned by July of 1947. Here I am trying to uh, put some validation on the rank of major, and we're talking about a sheep earning it, but... (laughs) Hey, a segue is a segue. Just take it. I'm immediately flashing back to that old cartoon from when I was a child, Barnyard Commandos. I See, I didn't want to bring it up. I didn't want to be that big of a geek right now. <laughs> oh, I'll be that big of a geek. I'll own it. Yeah, pigs versus sheep, man. These poor sheep. So Jesse's loyalty to the United States military, along with his proficiency as an officer, allowed him to earn his way into a position of great importance. And I want you to remember this because it's easy to be persuaded by lazy reporting or even by disinformation that Jesse Marcel was just another schmuck, that he was marched in front of a camera to debunk the crashed UFO theory of Roswell after the Air Force itself had released the information to the media. Because don't doubt for one second, Major Marcel, he was perceived as a bit of a doofus or as a patsy in the eyes of the public in the aftermath of the Roswell incident. Considering this man's reputation and sacrifice to his country throughout his life, that in and of itself is a shame, you know, that that he was made to be this patsy in the eyes of the public. So I want you to remember this part of it. This is where he is uh, an exception. Jesse Marcel in July of 1947, you know, 23 years into his career, at the time of the alleged crash near Roswell, was the number one intelligence officer in the United States military. He was also a key player in the 509th Bombing Group. That's an Air Force unit that's still relevant and operating to this day in 2022. But what was the 509th up to back in 47, you might ask? Well, the 509th Bombing Group was the group responsible for operational deployment of the United States' most top-secret project at the time. And if you put your math hat on, you'll realize that might be the atomic bomb. Mm. You know, that little occurrence. That little thing. That little thing. So along with executing the infamous bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki on August 6th and August 9th of 1945, respectively, the 509th would also assume the duty of protecting any and all data about the U.S.'s nuclear weapons program, a task that would become more and more daunting as the Cold War ramped up immediately following the end of World War II. So the fact that Major Jesse Marcel was at the very forefront, the very head of the unit charged with keeping those secrets, and carrying out the operational execution of atomic bomb tests, that should tell our listeners all they need to know about this man's credibility and character. Now we have the two most central characters of the Roswell incident together, Mac Brazel and Major Jesse Marcel. Mm -hmm. Brazel, he misses his sheep, and he wants to go back. (laughs) So he would drive... Those cold New Mexico lights get lonely. (laughs) So he would drive Marcel back to his. So you won't you won't mention Barnyard Commandos, but you'll go that route. Okay, yes. just making sure. Well, well, on this night, Brazel didn't have to be alone with his sheep. He took Marcel with him back to the ranch. If you remember, where the debris was covered over with brush. So Marcel was so flabbergasted by the physical properties of the debris that he took it home with him that evening of July seventh to take a closer look. So Marcel. Clearly, this man has never seen Creepshow or Night of the Comet, (laughs) because the basic rule of thumb that I have learned, when weird shit falls from the sky, don't bring it back to your house. Don't touch it. (laughs) Why would you touch it? (laughs) 
And not only did he take it back to his own house, but he let his kid play with it. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> so Jesse Jr. And I'm, I really am. I'm, I'm making a case here, okay? Because Major Marcel was done dirty, okay? So <laughs> I'm, yes. I'm trying to, to paint a, a good picture, but I'm also, it is pretty funny when you think about it, that yes, he, he found this weird stuff, took it home, and now his 10-year-old kid is playing with it. But basically what happened was Major Marcel, he comes home, and he laid out all of this otherworldly hunks of metal and debris on his living room or kitchen floor, depending on, you know, who you talk to. But Jesse Jr., he would go on himself to become a medical doctor. So he wasn't some schlub either. And he would spend pretty much his entire adult life affirming his father's belief that this wreckage was indeed extraterrestrial. So according to an interview by Jesse Jr.'s wife, Linda, with the Associated Press, Marcel had even shown his son a, quote, small beam with what looked like purple-hued hieroglyphics on it, end quote. So imagine you're 10 years old, you've been out playing jailbreak and riding your bike around the block that whole summer day or whatever. Your mom calls you in for dinner, for some meatloaf, mashed potatoes, but dad isn't home yet and you're a little worried. He finally comes walking through the door late that night with a crate full of weird pieces of jagged and busted up metal. You watch him lay it out on the carpet as this guy, this man that you idolize, who you think knows every answer to everything in the world, sits with his mouth agape unequivocally perplexed by over what he's looking at with his own two eyes. I mean, how would that make you feel? Clearly, no one else has a father that is a trash picker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dad got in another fender bender again. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I mean, there's no record that Major Marcel had a, a bad driving record, but... And here's this, this parental figure that you look up to, that you admire, and, and he's sitting there literally, he doesn't know what to make of what's in front of his eyes. Like, as a 10-year-old kid, what does that make you feel like? Yeah, I came home drunk again. I think if my dad, yeah, <laughs> I think if, you know, you work off your parents' emotions. So if my father ever came home just completely in disbelief and didn't have any words for what he had in this crate and there was stuff all over there and it's just unexplained, I think it would cause some sort of anxiety, you know, because the first thing a child's going to say is, what is that? And what could his response be if he didn't even know what it was? So I think- Go to your room. Yeah. Don't tell Um, your mother. Yeah, I think- Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It works for so many things. What do you say? I mean, obviously, as a child, you're intrigued, but I think like in this, I think it goes deeper than that. I think he was working off his father's anxiety. Like, what do we have here? Like, what am I going to do? Because it, it, it provokes the question now, what does that mean for his job and his reputation now that this is like in his lap? Does he hide it? Does he go forward with it? I think it caused a lot of unknowns for this guy. And I, I think that he passed that on to his kid, too, because what are you going to tell your kid? Oh, this is UFO stuff. How are you going to explain that to a child? Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing kind of is at that point, like Vinny had said, things had been kind of ramping up ever since the war. There were more and more sightings. People are obviously talking about this on the radio at this point. So even with things like dealing with hearing about the war or the atomic bomb or whatever that already must be mind blowing for a kid. And then now Mm -hmm. the last week you've been hearing people around town talking about alien sightings and flying saucers and stuff. And, uh, it must be really overwhelming. Right. And now it's sitting in his house. Now it's in his house. You know? Yeah. Yeah, So he's kind of like, now what do we do? 
And to kind of jump back to something that you said, Ange, like we're starting at Roswell because I think it's a convergence point, but UFO, alien sightings, Martians even, you know, like Martians was the big hot term back in the day because, you know, there was a point in time where the society believed that Mars was fully populated with Martians. Yeah. It was it mm-hmm. was common knowledge that that this was real, you know. Now we know that that's not true. But in the 1800s especially, people, you know, if you went up to anyone in the street and said, hey, there's Martians walking around Mars, they would have been like, yeah, we know. <laughs> so knowing that this thing from another world is in your living room and it having that emotional impact on your father, like you said, Ange, it is something that stuck with Jesse Marcel Jr., And it also Mm -hmm. stuck with the grandchildren of the family as well. I mean, to this day, they are trying to redeem their grandfather's legacy and his character because you'll see as as this story unfolds that Major Marcel was really made out to look like a fool. And it's a shame because he was the top intelligence officer. So he wasn't just someone that was perplexed by this in a sense that he had never saw it before. I would imagine he knew that Something might di- like this did exist at some point, and now it's in front of his face. I do want to come back to the Marcel's living room the night of July 7th later on, uh, and we'll probably do that in the next episode. But before we do, I want to cover how this alleged crash and subsequent finding of the recovered debris was reported by official Army sources. We're going to take a look at now. This is, again, this is not the decades that came after. This isn't what's been confirmed after the fact. Pretend we're back on the morning of July 8th, okay? And this is something we're seeing for the first time. Major Marcel, the top intelligence officer of the United States Air Forces, took the debris to his direct supervisor and base commander. His name was Colonel William Blanchard. Now, Colonel Blanchard inspected the debris himself and felt it necessary to notify his next-in-command, who was Army General Roger Ramey, at Fort Worth Army Airfield. Uh, it was sort of a parent airbase to Roswell Army Airfield at the time. General Ramey then ordered the debris to be taken to Fort Worth Army Airfield immediately for further inspection, and he even commissioned a B-29 Superfortress to fly the wreckage from Roswell to Fort Worth. So I'm going to add that the B-29 Superfortress, it wasn't just some run-of-the-mill passenger plane that took Major Marcel from point A to point B with the debris in tow. Okay, This B-29 Superfortress is the same aircraft that was trusted and was tasked with transporting the atomic bomb from the United States across the Pacific Ocean and executing the drop over Hiroshima and Nagasaki back in 45. And it typically needed a crew of 11 to 15 soldiers just to pilot and maintain the craft for any flight. It was built to transport the most precious of precious cargo, so the most precious of precious, okay? We got Gollum in the background now just uh, telling you just how important this airplane was. And Yeah, I mean, at the time, that thing was pretty much top of the line. I mean, it was even equipped with firearms to protect it against airborne attacks, you know. All of this for around about 480-mile trip from Roswell to Fort Worth to transport what would eventually be categorized as debris from a, from a weather balloon, okay? Air quotes. Yeah, air quotes, weather balloon. Swish, 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 swish. So, <laughs> so while Major Marcel was aboard the B-29 Fortress en route to Fort Worth Army Air Force Base, a press release was drawn up and delivered to the media in an effort to clarify details and to settle the nerves of those who knew of the alleged crash, because at this point, rumors were spreading like wildfire. 
On July 8, 1947, Public Information Officer of the 509th Bomb Group, Walter Hout, was commanded by Colonel Blanchard to draft and issue a press release stating personnel from the 509th Operations Group had recovered a quote-unquote flying disc, which had crash-landed on a ranch just outside of Corona. Now, please remember that Colonel Blanchard himself used the term flying disc. He instructed Officer Hout to prepare the press release with this language in it. So, Ange, here's uh, the part that you practice for an entire week for. <laughs> Watch me fall on my face. You're going to read the excerpt from Officer Hout's original press release. Now, remember, we're, it's July 8th, 1947. We picked up the newspaper. And not only is it in the paper there in uh, New Mexico, but it's all over the world at this point as well. So, Ange, take it away. Okay. The voice back then, how they had like the high sensitive mics. The I think you should do it all. Know. The many rumors regarding the flying disc. If you yeah, will. exactly. <laughs> I mean, you see, let him breaking news. That's Stop. Funny. <laughs> the many rumors regarding the quote unquote flying disc. Stop. Okay, but no, you can do it however you'd like. All right. The press release says the many rumors regarding the flying disc became a reality yesterday when the intelligence office of the 509th Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc through the cooperation of one of the local ranchers in the sheriff's office of Shaves County. The flying object landed on a ranch near Roswell sometime last week. Action was immediately taken and disc was picked up at the rancher's home. This particular quote was pulled from the July 8th edition of the Bakersfield Californian, a newspaper out of Bakersfield, California. Yeah, so like I said, at this point, this press release was everywhere. And they used specific language. You know, nothing, especially when it comes to national security. You know, even back in the 40s, nothing was an accident. Mm -hmm. This is where uh, a lot of people put on the second layer of their tinfoil hats, because you go into oh, the yeah. conspiracy zone now, because like Vinny said, the language is very specific. They wanted to implant the idea of a flying saucer into the public consciousness, and then they redact it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Then they want to say it's a weather balloon, and documentation shows that the RAAF base release two weather balloons a day so i think these uh, you know these officials kind of knew what a weather balloon looked like a lot of farmers in the area also were familiar with seeing these weather balloons and would have lower quality versions of their own because they're farmers they do need to know about the weather conditions and stuff like that so between that and pairing with the giant football field of a plane that they transported in, how much is the government telling us? You know, right. how much of it's a conspiracy? How much of it is them using the UFO story as an illusion to cover up something more nefarious by people that employed ex Nazis and built the atomic bomb? Right. <laughs> So are you saying that they released the weather balloons after the reports to make it seem like it's a pattern of things or was it before? Weather balloons were a a regular phenomenon uh, released from the airbase way before the crash was a thing. So they just used it as like a... It was just normal procedure. You know, Jared, to to touch on what you said, because it's a thought I've, I've always had. 
let's be honest. If the government doesn't want us, the general public, to know about something, they try to do a pretty good job of not letting the info leak. Like, you know, the, the person with the information mysteriously commits suicide by shooting themselves in the head twice. (laughs) kind of thing so my thought was always you know if the government is letting this information about quote-unquote ufos out what are they hiding that it's like they can know about this as long as they don't know about that what's the that yeah exactly yeah and that's why in this particular case it's so fascinating because you know people will hear the the name Roswell. They'll think of the incident and they'll roll their eyes and say, oh, it's just a, it was nothing. It was a weather balloon. The the government has come out, classified documents now saying, no, we actually, this was a cover-up. We covered this up because of X, Y, Z. And what they're saying they covered it up for, that story has also changed several times. So they're telling you that there was a conspiracy. There was a cover-up. You know, so Jared was saying that these intelligence officers, these air base commanders, they knew what they had. They knew what their daily duties were with these air balloons. So to specifically the colonel at the base, for him to put the word, the term flying disc into his press release was a very purposeful thing. Like not just put it in there, specifically instructed by higher ups to use that specific language. Exactly. So obviously disinformation was part of the MO here. What that disinformation is for, that's what we're talking about today. That's the debate. And you're going to hear later on, I'm not sure if we're going to cover it in this episode. I think we're going to talk about it next week. There is an official explanation. And whether that official explanation is the truth or not, that's up for debate. So, you know, you pick up the paper, you read that on July 8th, 47, but by the next day, by July 9th, the, the entire narrative had changed. So the press release and the quote-unquote facts that came along with it, they had all been redacted. And whether you believe it or not to be little green men from another galaxy or a top-secret surveillance project gone awry or something even more sinister, the fact is that a conspiracy and a cover-up did take place at Roswell, New Mexico in July of 1947, a finding that would be corroborated decades later after declassification and disclosure deemed it so by the United States government itself. So here's Major Jesse Marcel. He's an upstanding United States military lifer, a devoted family man who valued dignity above all else. He was made to look like a fool in front of the eyes of the press as flashbulbs refracted light off of the defeated eyes of a man who was forced to tell the American public what he knew was a lie. And there, ladies and gentlemen, is where we will pick up next week as part two of our trip down the rabbit hole of the Roswell files continue. So, Ange, Alex, Jared, uh, any closing thoughts before we wrap up part one? I mean, I'm having the same thought I always have on alien life or UFOs. It very well may exist. It wouldn't surprise me. I would have to be incredibly egotistical to think that the human race is the end-all, be-all of the universe. But I always, anytime I think about it, I go to the word why. And here's my reasoning. In theory, at least, these creatures have technology that's more advanced than ours. You know, we don't have 
things that can disappear in the blink of an eye. And logic dictates if they have that kind of technology, they're more advanced than us, more intelligent than us. If they see, and they can see us, if they see us, why would they expose themselves to us? We are a horrible species. Mm -hmm. Like you said with the atomic bomb, they see what we do to each other with the technology we do have. Why would they want to interact with us? Like if these, if, if there are aliens out there and they are that intelligent to have this kind of technology, why would they subject themselves to us or introduce the more technology to people that just use it to hurt each other? So that's why I always go to why. This, why would they want to do that? Th this is where things get complicated. <laughs> uh, it, it's less of a rabbit hole and more of a uh, ant farm situation, depending on what you want to believe, how uh, wiggity you want to seem to your friends. Um, there's different levels to it according to who you talk to. And some people feel, if you notice where these spikes of UFO sightings are, it's usually around times of great innovation or a renaissance period. So not just the splitting of the atom, but there's supposedly a reason why, as you guys were saying earlier, they think that there was a hand in building the pyramids, which aren't just That's in Egypt. Yeah. We can do that one. We can do South America. They have them mm -hmm. in various parts of Asia. And it's one of those things where, okay, it could just be humans' fascination with the unknown and the need to feel like there is something bigger out there than ourselves, because every culture has stories about dragons, too. And now we know, oh, it's just dinosaurs. But there is a theme throughout history where there do seem to be depictions of some sort of extraterrestrial or preternatural entity that helped out along the way. But the other side, depending, again, how deep down you want to go, is that there are factions or races beyond just what we think of the typical gray alien. And so what Jared's talking about, the, the gray alien or the grays, they're the alien that we see in pop culture a lot with the enlarged head, with the enlarged eyes slits for mouths and, and things like that. What Jared is suggesting is that there are multiple races. This, this, the small other grays are typically the ones that when you hear that there were bodies found at the crash site, those are the alien race that are typically uh, inserted in that category. But it's one of those things where it's like, okay, they just split the atom they just learned how to harness the power that can kill hundreds of thousands of people at a time. They are now actually a blip on the radar within our infinite galaxy. They've reached a point where maybe we do need to keep an eye on them. Yeah. And, and to kind of piggyback off of that, there's a guy that I encourage everyone to go and search for his, 
I guess, lectures, if you want to call them that, or his conversations with other people on the internet. His name is Lou Elizondo, and he was the head of ATIP, it's called. It's, um, I don't know what the acronym stands for off the top of my head, but we're actually- I we're, forget. It's actually changed, I believe. Yeah. I mean, we're going to talk about ATIP in a completely other episode, and, and I'll do a deep dive in Lou. I, I love this guy. I think um, everything he talks about, the way that he approaches it is amazing. But one of the points that he brings up is to Alex's question of why we don't know if what we're experiencing is malevolent, but we also don't know it could be benevolent or it could be benign. You know, these things could either be hurting here to hurt us, here to help us, or just here to observe. So it's it's really like like Alex is saying, what is their motivation? What are they here to do? Are we simply animals in a zoo for these beings, if they are beings at all? to observe or are they here to harm us and to wipe our civilization off the map completely because we've become a danger to ourselves and others or are they here to stop us they didn't stop hiroshima and nagasaki from happening they didn't stop the splitting of the atom and causing this disruption in everything we know so the proof isn't necessarily there that they are benevolent beings but you know maybe they are to a degree maybe they're watching until they absolutely have to intervene. I mean, there, there's so many different scenarios and situations. And like I had mentioned, uh, you know, there's no doubt that the Roswell incident is the launching pad for all things UFO and UAP. I mean, this is where it converges, at least in a contemporary sense. All trails, whether they happen chronologically before or after 47, they lead to Roswell. So, you know, make no mistake, we will be exploring as many of those trails and diving deep down as many of those rabbit holes as possible as we move along. So just to wrap it up for part one of the Roswell Files, until next time, I want to thank you all so much for making Geek Out Down the Rabbit Hole your destination and for spending time with us, inviting us into your homes and your ear holes. <laughs> so I'm Vinny. And Murray. I'm Alex. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs> uh, this is Jared. Lock your doors and keep watching the skies. (laughs) (laughs) And we will talk to you all next week. So we'll catch you later. Bye.